0: Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go. And show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the riches of your grace bestowed upon us, unworthy, unprofitable servants. Lord, thanksgiving is the appropriate response to such a bestowal as Your unmerited favor given to us, seen most keenly in the gift of Your own Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You for His incarnation, for His coming to earth, for His taking on flesh and dwelling among us, the eternal Son of God dwelling among us, living a perfect life. And then laying down that life as a ransom for many, being buried and then rising again from the dead, conquering sin and death. We're so thankful to be granted the privilege of knowing Him. And it is for that reason we gather together today to give thanks and praise unto You, our great God. And to give thanks to Your blessed Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So I didn't know if you noticed, but the 2012 Olympic Games have begun in London. One thing that is certain about Olympians is that they didn't get there apart from discipline and practice and hard work. I'm sure there were many small victories as well as defeats along their journey to athletic greatness, Periodically, even sports commentators, as we watch these events transpire, will give us glimpses into the backgrounds, the athletic biographies of selected athletes. Usually, they point out significant milestones in their flight to the top of their respective fields. Now, while none of us are Olympians, at least I'm not aware of any of us being Olympians. If we are, what are you doing here? You should be in London. We can all identify, though, with the concept of milestones. Children love seeing markings on the wall moving up. We delight in seeing new development in technology come into being. We trace our own educational development through schools that we've attended and grades that we've attained. Our lives are often traced by major life decisions, where we went to school, whether we got married or not, whether or not we have children, as well as where our career is and what our employment decisions. These are all... I would say fine milestones. And if we were created only for this world, then that would be the end of our story. Just a collection of these events and milestones along our journey. However, since we've been created and fashioned and designed with eternity in mind, our consideration of milestones must be expanded to consider the most important area of all, that of our spiritual walk, our journey in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. How much more self-controlled ought we be than Olympic athletes? Since we know that this life is a mere shadow of what's to come. And we're not pursuing a wreath that will perish. We're not pursuing a metal that might deteriorate or be lost. We're pursuing an unfading crown of glory presented to us by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I'd like to encourage you to consider your own life's milestones, for I think it does provide us with an opportunity for self-examination. What events mark your life? If I was to ask you on a piece of paper to give me a timeline of significant events or things that have transpired in your life, spiritually speaking, what would would stand out? The Bible encourages us to do a self-examination in 2 Corinthians 13.5 in order that we might repent of our sin and grow in gratitude regarding the magnitude of God's grace bestowed to us. Unless, as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, unless indeed you fail the test. Well, since I don't want to suggest something... That I myself am unwilling to do. I thought I would share a couple of milestones in my own life with you. Some of you have heard maybe smatterings of this before. But in my own life, I can trace some major spiritual milestones. And I can see how those have transpired on the basis of God working through His Word. As well as working through other brothers and sisters in Christ. To transform me. To draw me further into a loving relationship with my Creator and Savior. And I have definitely had some ups and downs in my journey. I've seen some mountaintops followed quickly by valleys. But I'm sure you can identify with this, that sometimes it's when my life might seem the lowest, that God's grace grace seems exceedingly precious to me. Sometimes in the moment I might not have been able to say that, but certainly in retrospect I can truly is in our weakness that we're made strong. And God has this marvelous way of taking outcasts, taking the neglected, taking the despised things of this world, and using them to bring to pass His magnificent plans. My journey began with the blessing of a Christian heritage. Not only my parents, but my grandparents, my uncles, my aunts, my brother, my cousins, all had made it their ambition to be, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Jesus Christ. It's no small thing to be granted the opportunity to grow up learning about Jesus from a young age. Parents with your children, never tire of telling them about Christ. I learned about Jesus at home and at church. and I repented of my sin and trusted in Christ around the age of eight years old. My family moved to Texas when I was in my junior year of high school, which I wasn't too excited about. But in hindsight... I see what a blessing God had in store for me. I became part of a small church in the Kingwood area that had just kind of gotten started. They had a small youth group. And there was a youth pastor that was just brought on to the staff who greatly invested in me. He was a gifted evangelist and singer. And I see how God used him to kind of bring me out of uh, my shyness. Um, I can remember him sharing the gospel with people across the fast, fast food Maybe fast food does fast food counter, and um, he made a huge impact on me. I mean, that I remember watching him praise the Lord with such sincerity and genuineness of heart. And I was at that stage where you know singing became uncool, and so I had stopped singing. And I remember his example making such an impact on me in that regard as well. Went off to Texas A&M University, which formed the next platform for my spiritual development. The Lord taught me the importance of one-on-one discipleship from a couple of men that invested in me personally while I was a student. One was the college pastor at the church I was attending. The other was a minister with um, the Navigators on campus. I remember still meeting with him in the cafeteria there, and him just quizzing me with scripture memory. And you know, here we are, just talking and sharing with one another. He made a massive investment in my life. And oftentimes, as I look back to those years, I pray that the Lord would allow me to make a good return on the investment that He's made in me through so many of His faithful servants. Next, the Lord would afford me an opportunity to serve as a youth director in Cosy, Texas. I worked alongside of a pastor who instilled in me the importance of God's Word in preaching. Now, for all of us, hopefully that should be like a no-brainer concept. Of course you preach the Word of God. That's what you're doing, right? That's the whole point is. But for me, at a very important kind of stage in my own growth and development, watching him faithfully open the Word of God and plainly explain what is there and make appropriate sorts of applications from the Scriptures was such a valuable thing. A sermon must be biblically grounded and spiritually consistent. And for a young youth pastor inundated with a completely different model of ministry in those days, it was really the youth ministry model really starting to you know go and it was all about fun and jokes and games. And there was not a note of sobriety about it. It was something very, very useful and helpful to have a man who instilled this lesson in me early on in ministry. The Lord would then bring me here to this church, which at the time was called Oak Ridge Christian Fellowship. God would allow me the privilege of serving under Pastor Frank Moore, who instilled in me the importance of shepherding God's people, of ministering to people, and loving people. It was also in connection with him that God would teach me about the importance of Christian education. And I would see how all of these little things would start to fall into place. I would then attend Southern Baptist Theological, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and interact with faculty and students there that helped me in my spiritual growth. But at the same time, there were people right here in our own church that were making big impacts on my life. A couple of you might know this, but Mark Cook, who's right over there inside of the sanctuary, passed to me at one occasion a tape by John MacArthur entitled Election. Seems like a pretty simple tape to be passed. I remember putting it in my car, listening on the way up to school, and all of a sudden going, wow, I think that the doctrines of grace are biblical. I think this whole predestination thing, I can't escape it. I remember getting up to school, talking with my friends. They talked me down from the extreme. And then I listened to it again and became completely convinced that this is what the Bible proclaims. I read a couple of books by R.C. Sproul, John Piper, and became convinced of the doctrines of grace. That they are simply a declaration of what the Scriptures declare. Now, the implications of understanding that we're saved by the sheer unmerited favor, the amazing grace of a holy, righteous, merciful God continues to work its way out in our ministry here at Oak Ridge Reformed Baptist Church. Thankful for that milestone. There's several other milestones that I might mention, even as recent as discussions with Justin, regarding the interpretation and application of the Old Testament. You've heard us proclaim the importance of pointing to Christ in all of the Scriptures, following the example that Jesus set for us, the example of the apostles, realizing that the whole Old Testament bears witness to the glory and greatness of Jesus the milestone that I want to conclude with in this brief spiritual autobiography is one that I had 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 a direct bearing on me, made some big implications on the way in which I approach decision making, and has a bearing on this morning's text. In my last year at seminary, I began a study on the will of God that would forever change my interaction with that subject. Long story short, I came to realize that fi- finding God's will was not so much filled with esoteric mystery as had been presented to me in the past. I had feared up to that point a multitude of options in decision-making for fear that I might, quote, miss the will of God for my life. It made a multiplicity of options a fearful, scary thing for me, and I would sometimes just stack the deck purposefully, like, only send my application to one college, so I don't have to worry about anybody else should they accept me. So this is this is where I was. And I can remember in the midst of studying through the Scriptures and working through this, that by the end of my study I came to genuinely enjoy a multitude of God-honoring choices and a tremendous freedom to serve God in a multitude of capacities. This then redirected my focus from determining how God specially wanted what He wanted for, for certain decisions that He would have been pleased with one way or the other. I could do it or not do it and God would have been completely... Fine with it. Happy with it. It's still giving glory. And instead, redirect my focus away from that to those things which are plainly marked out in Scripture. For example, I was free to marry or not marry. Be married or not married. As long as your bride is a Christian. But either state carried with it both blessings and responsibilities from God. Whether you're single or married, there's blessings and responsibilities commensurate with each of those states. So instead of worrying and fretting about whether or not you get married, just recognize that whether you do or not is an area of freedom. And if you get married, that has blessings and responsibilities. If you remain single, that has blessings and responsibilities attached with it as well. If you choose to marry, wisdom can assist you in helping you make a prudent decision on whom you marry. But again, there's tremendous freedom in this. No longer would I be concerned about missing God's will on these matters. That's truly really free. God would be pleased with me either way. Provide me with the freedom to choose. I find it such an interesting discussion because when it comes to an overarching belief regarding the sovereignty of God, I'm steadfast in my belief. While I make a free decision, it's made in such a way that God's sovereignty can also be said to have brought it to pass. <laughs> so whatsoever happens is according to God's sovereign will. It's just that the decision-making process need not be burdened with concerns that the Scriptures do not require. As a matter of fact, if we were to try to delve into what does God want me to do that goes beyond the Scriptures, that's something abhorred by the Scriptures, condemned by the Scriptures. You don't go to soothsayers and and all these sorts of individuals to try to figure out what the future holds. But the Scripture tells us plainly we're to trust and obey What's explicitly commanded, we're to follow. But those things which are left up to an area of freedom, we can take great joy in knowing that the Lord is pleased with whatever decision we might make. One of the best examples, I think, is that found in 1 Thessalonians 5:16 through 18 And everybody always asking about the will of God, the will of God. It's a great thing to do, just do a study of that phrase, the will of God. And you'll find a couple of passages like this where the will of God is explicitly stated for us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything gives thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for you? That you rejoice always. That you pray without ceasing. And that you give thanks in everything. There are a few places in the Bible where emphatic statements like this arise. And rather than worrying about the things which God leaves open to us... We ought rather to sink effort into obeying what he's plainly declared and being thankful and rejoicing always. Kind of interesting, in some people's fretfulness and worry about a decision, I think they end up failing to keep this command. <laughs> <laughs> to be thankful in everything. To rejoice always. Let's keep these things before our eyes. See, not only does God provide us with this plain exhortation in a letter to the church in Thessalonica, but Jesus gives us a stunning illustration of precisely what this ceaseless prayer, this continual rejoicing, and this perpetual thanksgiving looks like. In Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, Jesus performs a miracle that is well worth our consideration. For it not only declares Jesus' ability to heal those with physical ailments, but it speaks to a much deeper situation. It speaks to man's deeper spiritual problem, to God's provision in and through Christ, and to the prayerful, joyful, thankful response that accompanies those who receive Christ. In a sermon entitled Receiving Grace and Giving Thanks, let's walk through this text with three scenes in mind. Three scenes. The first one is the sound of desperation. Let's first take in the sound of desperation. Just a note here, a common condition brought out by the text. This healing story introduces us to ten leprous men. We know nothing about them at first, save their common condition. They're all suffering from leprosy alike. We don't know what their home life was like. We don't know what kind of families they came from. We don't even know until later the nationality of the individuals uh, that are being pictured here. We just know they have one thing in common, and that is leprosy. Now, the disease of leprosy in ancient times extended to more than what is strictly considered leprosy in our own day. Leprosy, by ancient standards, would encompass a host of various diseases that demonstrate symptoms on the skin. Leprosy derives its meaning from the Greek word lepi, which means scales, as a fish has scales. So, therefore, it describes sicknesses that affected the skin, discolorations, lesions, and growths. And you can tell us what it is because that's what they were tested for by the priests, should this be your situation. Now, these diseases, when not treated properly, can and did result in worsening conditions. For some, the loss of eyesight. For some, the degeneration of bones. Other complications of the cardiovascular system. And even brain damage. These conditions could lead to a long and painful death. Now, some of these diseases were communicable through contact with skin and commonly used items, which helps us understand some of the reason for God's strict regulations concerning what you do with someone who is leprous. Remember, you're to put them out from the people of Israel. They live on the outskirts of town, and not only them, but all the objects in connection with them were to be taken care of, burnt, or removed. Part of the serious actions that were taken was to prevent further outbreaks of disease within the Israelite community. But this is what made leprosy so devastating. Imagine, you know, all of a sudden you're looking at your skin and you see something that doesn't look quite right. And after having gone to the priest for examination, it's determined that you have a form of leprosy. Now, at that moment, if you had any connection with leprosy up until that point, you would have not only been overwhelmed with thoughts of, the impending physical ailment that you now have and what's going to happen as a result of it. But now you're faced with the reality that you're going to be cut off from your family and friends. There's no going to be, I'm going to stay at home today and my wife's going to take care of me. There would be none of that. You were excommunicated from town, sent out away from all of your loved ones. Never to enjoy their touch again. Never to be able to sit with them and... Embrace them again. Leviticus thirteen forty five and 46 explains As For the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn. The hair of his head shall be uncovered. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. It's one thing to be diagnosed with a life-threatening ailment and quite another to then have all of your loved ones removed from you. Can you imagine it? But then you just got news that you have cancer. And with that comes that you're not going to have to be sent away from your family and never to see them again, never to be interacting with them in close quarters again. No longer having their touch and company. The only hope was that the leprous spots would go away and after a priestly examination and an offering of a sacrifice, you might be restored back to the community. But the, likeliness, the likelihood of that was slim. As there were no known cures to this ailment. We're informed that Jesus was traveling through, we're told here, through the middle of Samaria and Galilee. Probably what's being pictured here is he's traveling on the border between Galilee and Samaria. And we're told that he was coming into a certain city, a certain city on the border of Galilee and Samaria. Now, we're purposely left here wondering why such mystery? I mean, why not just tell us the city? You told the city and so many other places. While this kind of general vague language about the location that Jesus is at is a piece of information that's being held back on purpose here until the appropriate time. This mysterious unnamed location does not preclude a mixed group of lepers from coming to Jesus. And after we're told that the one now healed leper returns to Jesus, he's then identified as a Samaritan. But note that that information is held back. For an appropriate moment, that means that Jewish and Samaritan stigmas—remember, they have nothing to do with one another. Remember, there's several occasions where we even see this with the disciples. Jesus is there at the talking with the woman at the well in Samaria, and they're just like, "What on earth?" And even the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman is like, "What are you doing talking with me? How is he asking me for for a drink of water?" So while these stigmas were maintained, otherwise, it's interesting to note that in this group of ten lepers, we now have a mix. There's Samaritans and Jews present. Desperation for companionship and unity against a common enemy, in this case disease, has brought together estranged people in the interest of survival. Right? We're not going to be able to be with any of our loved ones, so we're going to develop a new family. We'll find some other lepers. And we'll band together. It's interesting that it's once they were estranged, once they were put outside the camp, that now they... Find friendship with those that before they hated. It's amazing how trials and difficulties can drive men together at times and make them forget points of difference, which otherwise were exceedingly important. Now These features about leprosy, its condition on the skin, its debilitating effects, it's leading to death, and then its separation from the community, makes leprosy particularly useful as an illustration of the miserable state that all of us are in. It's an appropriate illustration. Because remember, no matter what our differences are, we all share in common a deadly disease. We might not all have leprosy. Perhaps none of us do. But we all have a terminal illness all the same. It's called sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And it doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan, a Jew, or something else. We all share this in common common. The result of our sin has brought similar consequences. We've not only seen its effects wreak havoc on our bodies physically, but we've seen its effects on us spiritually in relationship with God and in our estrangement from one another as sin works its way into every relationship and causes problems. This is our common condition. Now, there's a less common realization, though, that the text shows us. We have a common condition, but there's a less common realization that this group of ten lepers demonstrates for us. They hear of Jesus traveling along the border region. So they hurry their way out to where Jesus is passing by. Now, they keep the law in this regard because we're told that they keep their distance. So they can't just rush up to Jesus Remember, there's a cry out, unclean, unclean. Well, what's interesting here is instead of crying out, unclean, unclean, from a distance, they cry out, Jesus, Master, mercy us. Jesus, Master, mercy us. Now, at the heart of this action are a few realizations that I want to bring to the surface. First of all, they were in desperate need. And they were aware of their need. They had no hesitations about crying out for help. They raised their voices. They were not ashamed to admit their need and cry out to Jesus. They came to the right person. No doubt the insufficiencies of all the doctors around had already been proven. So they now came to the one who was powerful to help them. They addressed Jesus as He is. Master. At bare minimum, this title recognizes the power and position of Christ. It backs up the reason for their request. Why are they coming to Him? Why not someone else? Why are they asking Him for mercy? Because they recognize something different about Jesus. Jesus had power to do something. They also didn't presume upon the Lord's grace. They simply asked Jesus to mercy them. They didn't instruct the Lord in how He might help them. They didn't offer any of their suggestions. They didn't give them a time frame. They just pled for mercy. They would receive any aid He desired to provide them with in whatever manner He desired to provide it. And when they're told to show themselves to the priests as Jesus commands, they depart. Without any sign of change physically. Get this. Jesus says, present yourself to the priest. Why? Because before you could be inducted back into the community, the priest had to sign off that you were clean. That you no longer had any leprosy. But when Jesus says this to them, if they look down at their body, what would they see? Leprosy. He says, go and present yourself to the priest. And while they are still looking at their body, still covered with leprosy, they go. They obey. There's some correlations between this story and the story in the old testament we have read this morning of Naaman and Elisha. What a glorious story that is, isn't it? Second Kings. The slave girl says, Oh, if my master lived in Israel, you could go to Elisha and he could provide you with aid. Naaman asks the king. The king sends Naaman off with all of these gifts. He comes to the king of Israel. The king of Israel thinks this is some sort of setup, right? You just want, you're asking me to do something which is impossible. I can't do that. And so when I tell you no, then you're going to turn back and then be mad at us and come and attack us. He thinks there's some sort of devious plot at hand. Elisha hears about this and says, send him to me. Now, we get from Naaman's response that he was not expecting what Elisha did. He didn't agree with Elisha's methodology. He comes to his house, and Elisha doesn't even come out. (laughs) He sends his servant out to him. So here you have this powerful general, and he's being approached by a servant. And then, wonder of wonders, he tells him, go wash into Jordan. Naaman is upset. He's furious, we're told. He goes away, Behold, I thought, He will surely come out to me. In other words, certainly Elisha will come to me. And he'll call on the name of his Lord. The Lord is God. And he'll wave his hand over the place and cure this leper. And then he mentions, Aren't there better rivers for me to wash in? I mean, this Jordan? The rivers in Damascus are much better than these. So he goes away in a rage until another servant Asks him, Had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says you wash and be clean? So he goes down and washes seven times. He comes up and we're told that his skin is like that of a child. Of a little child. I have the blessing of a few little ones running around my house and their skin is smooth. There is something distinctive about An infant's skin. And here we're told that this man not only comes up healed, but better than he was before. When he returns then to the man of God with all his company, he stands before him and he says, Behold, I now know there is no God in all the earth but this one in Israel. Strange methodology, but note this, note the contrast. That guy says, he's mad about this strange request. Instead, these lepers just go. They just go. Don't miss, once again, Jesus here. I think we're getting a glimpse into the fact that Jesus is the realization of all the hopes established in the Old Testament through the prophets. Here he is, the true and better Elisha, who came to not only heal physical ailments, but also... To provide healing for their spiritual diseases. So many of these realizations I think will lay right at the heart of genuine spiritual healing. I mean, think about how these men responded and think then about how we respond to God and salvation. We come to Christ, in order to do so you have to admit your need. You have to not be ashamed to cry out to Jesus. You have to realize that Jesus is your only hope. That every other physician cannot help you. No one else can cure you. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. You must recognize Jesus as He is. Not as you would like to invent Him, but as He is. As Master. As Lord. Think about it this way. Why come to Him unless you recognize Him as such? Only the God-man can save you. You must come with empty hands. For that's what you bring to salvation. You have to, as these men did, throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Not proceeding to then dictate as to how God will bring it to pass. But just pleading, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pleading for mercy. Knowing you don't deserve it. You cannot merit it. You're not in a position to give instruction to the Lord Most High. You're in the position to... Have your humility, asking Him to simply pity you. And you must take God at His word, regardless of how you feel at the moment. You're to obey God's command to repent and believe in Jesus. Faith takes God at His word and obeys. But the bulk of mankind does not sense their spiritual disease. There is a lack of crying out for help to Christ, and that is evidence that so many are not aware of just how weak and just how helpless and just how much in need of grace and mercy they really are. They're living under a delusion, thinking that they're all right and everything's going to be just okay. Here we see that we hear the sound of desperation. Next, I want you to see with me how God responds to man's need. I want you to look at the work of grace with me. The work of grace. We see here God's grace in action. God's grace is evident all around us. God's general grace is seen in His sustaining of everything that He's made. He not only has put on a display of His power through the initial work of creation... But every moment that we persist, He continues to show His power and grace in upholding the world that He has made and all that it contains. He sends His rain on the just and the unjust alike. God's grace is extended every day to people who hate Him with every breath they take. Which, by the way, those breaths given to them by God Himself. Yet God continues to permit their continued existence on earth. In fact, all of us who are now Christians have to admit that at one time we were rebels and God was persisting our life. God was maintaining our life while all we were doing was living in rebellion against God. It was nothing but His grace that allowed us to persist long enough to become recipients of His special saving grace as well. Reminds me of God is not slack concerning His promise. A day of judgment's coming. The delay is purposeful. It's an expression of God's general grace to all of humanity. As he continues to work to bring home all those whom he sent his son to die for. Now, I add to these sustaining and general graces God's unique and special graces. Luke 17 highlights at least two of these. Word about Jesus' miracles must have traveled to these ten lepers that they then would hope that Jesus might act in reference to their need as He had to those before them. And they would not be disappointed. But yet again, Jesus does not follow a set prescribed method of healing. There's a great variety in Jesus' methodology. I know I've talked to Steve Kemper about this before. He's made a really cool chart on this. But I, as contemplated through, you know, why so many different ways when going about healing people? Could I propose at least at least this could be at least one reason among many? that it was meant to prove the, that the important facet was that Jesus works with divine power rather than just some insightful doctor who makes prescriptions based upon general rules of biology and anatomy. Right? Jesus is performing miracles. You can't just boil it down to do step A, B, C. No. Everything was to point to the fact that Jesus had unique power because he uniquely was the Son of God. In this particular case, Jesus doesn't touch these men, nor does He even heal them immediately, nor even pronounce them healed. Get this. He does not say, you will be healed. He doesn't say, you are healed. He doesn't touch them. He doesn't embrace them. You know, Jesus isn't above these sorts of things, for He's done it in the case of others. Instead, He commands them to present themselves to the priests. I think that command was designed to evoke a demonstration of faith in these men. Now, this is in contrast with Luke 5. When Jesus healed a man covered with leprosy, it was only after healing him that he then instructed him to go and be examined by the priest. So it's only after these men get on the road, on their way to the priest, that all of a sudden, they're healed. This is a special grace of God. We still see God working, answering prayer, providing miraculous healings and wondrous provisions which can only be explained through God's gracious intervention. I'm sure if we went around the room, we could talk about these moments where God answered prayer and acted in a way that dumbfounded doctors that made people scratch their heads and go, how on earth is this possible? And we who know the Lord knows, know how it is possible. Because while there are many things impossible with men, nothing is impossible with our great God. Now, as wonderful as such graces are, there still remains an even more astounding special grace The grace that is bestowed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because any amount of leprosy that is healed, still this person is still going to wear out and die someday. It's appointed for all men to die once and after this, the judgment. So whatever physical healing is provided, and we give glory to God and thanks to God for His healing and how He does heal. But there's an even more fantastic grace that needs to be heralded and shouted. I believe we find this grace pictured at the end of this account. Jesus tells the one leper who returns to give thanks, He tells that one leper who comes back to give thanks, that his faith has saved him. The word saved there can be translated healed. But however it's translated, I believe it's obvious that there's something more than a physical healing that Jesus is pointing to now. Why do I say that? Because of Jesus' response regarding the other men's lack of thanks, lack of return. All the ten lepers experienced physical healing. Everybody got that. Even the ones that kept on going. They'd become beneficiaries of another grace of God. A special grace of God. One that was extended to them and not extended to other lepers. Right? So, a special inbreaking of the grace of God in their, in their account. All ten lepers experienced physical healing. I think Jesus' statement here is distinguishing something about this one lone returning leper and those who failed to come back. This Samaritan is not only freed of leprosy, but he's granted access to Jesus' kingdom. He's made a child of God. The biblical doctrine of grace does not exclude work. And this is why I say the work of grace. Grace is operative. Grace is working. Understand, when we talk about grace... We're not saying that it excludes work. It just excludes our work. Or better said, it plainly states that our reception of grace is not based on our working. We don't receive grace for something that we have done. If it was, it would no longer be grace. It would be something we merited, something we earned. We don't receive grace because of something we have done. Now, this is an important clarification because... Sometimes in our effort to say we're not saved by works, we might fail to recognize that a work was most definitely required. Because while salvation is not by our good works, therefore leaving us no room to boast, it's most certainly, it is most certainly requires a perfect work, that of Jesus Christ. A perfect, holy, righteous God must satisfy His justice and pour out His holy wrath against sinners. Otherwise, God would cease to be just. The only means by which God can accept sinners into relationship with Himself is for there to be a spotless, perfect sacrifice upon which God could satisfy His wrath and maintain His justice. And that sacrifice would also need to be able to offer His own righteousness in the stead of those whom He died for. And this is what God has provided for us in His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God provides one who could take our sin upon Himself And be treated as we deserve, so that He could offer His righteousness to us, so we could be treated as He deserved. Or maybe better, as He deserves. Clarification is so important as well. Because while we're not saved by works, we're saved for good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. makes it so plain. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You see, grace works. Grace is operative. Grace comes to us through sacrifice. Grace comes to us through the work of Jesus Christ. And once we've been, become beneficiaries of that saving grace, it works in us and works itself out in our living. Grace is active. Grace is working. And note that there's an expectation here. We get a glimpse into the Lord's expectations regarding how we respond to the grace He gives. It's in contrast between this leper who returns and the former companions that do not that evokes from Jesus three rhetorical questions. Number one, We're not ten cleansed? Number two, Now where are the nine? And number three, Were none found having returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Jesus is appalled by the lack of thanksgiving of the nine lepers who just continued on to the priests. That was interesting. Weren't they just obeying what Jesus said? They were obeying, right? Jesus said, go present yourself to the priests. But Jesus has a complaint with them, doesn't He? What, ten of you? Where are the other nine? one of the other nine would have said, well, we're just obeying what you told us to do. But someone who's become a recipient of this sort of grace, how do they respond? This man cannot contain himself. He's running back to Jesus. His heart has been transformed. He recognizes that more important than being accepted back into the community was his acceptance with Christ. He wants to plunge his face at Jesus' feet. To cry out and give glory to God. What a snapshot, I believe, of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees would have been just going along, just doing their thing with no heart change, with no deep gratitude. Nothing precludes this man from still going to the priest presenting himself. He can still go. He just sees that there's something urgent that he must do now. And what a great picture of how thanksgiving operates. How dare we ever stop in giving thanks? When there's an opportunity to give thanks, give thanks. Don't wait. Romans 1 declares, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We're very familiar with that verse. But then in verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They lacked thanks gratitude. Paul warns Timothy. Why do we have that 2 Timothy 3 passage read right after this glorious 2 Kings 5? It kind of seems like a downer. In the middle of that description of these evil men to be avoided, did you catch it? Ungrateful. Ungrateful. It's right there in the middle of the list. Listen to it. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. There are a lot of people going through the motions of religious expression with no heart of thanksgiving to God. And that's concerning. Isn't it interesting that in a midst that includes irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, bruters, brutal, and haters of good... In the midst of all of that is ungrateful. How do you think the Lord feels about our lack of gratitude? Should it be found in us? And the point is this: it's so preposterous that these nine men would not return with this one. I mean, didn't they see him return? Didn't they see him go back? How could they just continue on their way? And we might be appalled at that. But then I wonder sometimes if the percentages today are any better. Can we even find 10% of people in the world today who are honestly expressing thanksgiving to God in a continual fashion? Sadly, sometimes, can we even find 10% within the church? Do we find ourselves grumbling and complaining and disputing and fighting? How about this one? Do we find ourselves praying and petitioning but never giving thanks? There may be times when the best of us are far too much like the nine lepers. uh, J.C. Ryle exposed the problem this way. We are more ready to pray than to praise. We are more disposed to ask God for what we have not than to thank Him for what we have. Murmurings and complainings and discontent abound on every side of us. Few indeed are to be found who are not continually hiding their mercies under a bushel while setting their wants and needs on a hill. Get that? Hiding the mercies you've received from God and hiding them and not thinking of them and meanwhile putting up in a prominent place all of our needs and trials. There's a problem with that. These things ought not so to be. You see, ingratitude is a complete reversal of our real position before God. Namely, that God owes us nothing and we owe Him everything. You get that? If you really get that, you will not complain when God, when something happens your way and be mad at God as if He owed you something. He owes you nothing. Instead, you should respond with deep gratitude that He gives you anything. See, Spurgeon remarked, We do not praise the Lord fitly, proportionately, intensely. We receive a continent of mercies and only return an island of praise. We get continents of mercy. And return islands of praise. Sad it is to see God, God, God all goodness and man all ingratitude. God all goodness and man all ingratitude. Multitudes of our fellow citizens pray when they are sick and near to dying. But when they grow better, their praises grow sick unto death. Ouch. Let us think it is great a sin to neglect praise as to restrain prayer. He says, just as much a problem to find people neglecting praise as those who neglect prayer. Luke 6, 35 and 36, Jesus says, Love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Praise the Lord that He is, because I'm in that category too ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Don't you know that Jesus could have just like, withdrawn the cure of leprosy from those nine that kept on going? Now it's for dramatic effect that de- the declaration of the nationality of this leper is held back until the last possible moment. and, and it, it reads that way in the Greek. It's very purposeful. Holding it back. Holding it back. Only one returns to give thanks. And he was dun, 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 a Samaritan. Now, this is not the only time the Gospels present Samaritans in a favorable light. You mentioned the Samaritan woman at the well who gladly receives Jesus. And then she leads her whole village to come to Christ. As well as Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan, which had been super shocking in that day. That the Samaritan is the hero of the story. This is no accident. Jesus is pointing out the reality that people outside of the Jewish people are gladly coming to Him. The implication of Jesus' words are, okay, there were ten of them. We don't know how many were what. <laughs> but at least Jesus at least points out this. There must have been at least some Jews there. Otherwise, why would He say, why is it only this foreigner coming back to me? Third, let's consider how the Samaritan exemplifies those transformed by grace. Point number three, the depth of thanksgiving. The depth of thanksgiving. Let's see how this plays itself out in his own life. He sees that he's healed. He's granted a God-oriented perspective. His immediate response is to return to Jesus. He stops in his tracks. He does not about-face. And he runs back to Christ. In his mind, seeing the priests can wait. His concern is to give God glory. Why would the rest continue to the priests? It's probably because their concern was to remove the social stigma that was placed on them. It seems that their overriding desire was to reacclimate to life as it used to be. But for the Samaritan, the need of the moment was praise. His life had been changed in a much larger way than a restoration of the flesh could picture. We might say that his healing went down to his heart. While the healing of the other nine was just skin deep, there was no way that he would allow his request for mercy from Jesus to outshout his praise to Jesus when Jesus answered. The Samaritan's perception of what was most important had been transformed. So we're told that now he spoke with great voice in giving glory to God. He gave glory to God with great voice. They cried out, Lord, Master, Jesus, have mercy on us. And now that he's been healed, he cries out with great voice giving glory to God. He followed his cure back to its source. He recognized that this was an act of God and he exuberantly gave the Lord Glory. You can tell when someone's been saved by God's grace. Because they're fundamentally driven not by being accepted by the world. Not by being able to fit back into society. They're driven by the thought of how they might give God glory. Everything else can wait. Everything else can be put on hold. Everything else can be neglected. But this one thing. This one chief end, this grand purpose for which we exist, for which we were redeemed, giving glory to our God. John Calvin, we have short memories in magnifying God's grace. Every blessing that God confers upon us perishes through our carelessness if we are not prompt and active in giving thanks. We must act like this man did. Immediate thanksgiving. Because as Calvin said, we are horrible when it comes to remembering all the blessings God has given. Have you noticed that about yourself? I can notice about myself. It is easy to remember all the hardships, all the trials, all the difficulties. They spin through our minds. They're on our prayers all the time. But how often are we counting our blessings, naming them one by one by one? Again, a God-oriented perspective changes all of that. You recognize who God is and who you are, transforms your perception of what you have been given, what you have received. And instead of a prideful arrogance complaining about what you've been given or not given, in its place comes a deep, humble gratitude. And that's what's present in this man. A deep, humble gratitude. This is present by God's marvelous grace. His heart has been transformed. Notice this man's immediate action is to return to Christ and fall on his face at Jesus' feet. Now, while we all would admit the posture in and of itself does not necessarily say that anything changed, there's something very distinctive about a Samaritan putting his face on the ground before a Jewish man. You see here, everything has changed. Because he's not just some Jewish man to this man. He's Jesus the Son of God. He's recognized who Christ is. He sees his own unworthiness and he recognizes the grandeur of Jesus. And so he's face down at his feet giving humble thanks unto Christ. This occasion is a wonderful illustration of Jesus' words in the previous section. Remember he said... When the servant comes in from working in the field or with the sheep, he doesn't sit down at the table for the master to serve him. Instead, he stays up. The the master comes in, he serves the master, and the master is done. Then he feeds himself. And when he's all done with that, he doesn't expect any thanks from the master because he's only done what was required of him. Here, this man shows that deep gratitude. He doesn't expect thanks. He's he's merely doing what's required of him. He comes giving thanks. Thanks. You see, one who recognizes what he or she actually deserves, judgment, will see any grace extended to him or her as an unmerited, undeserved blessing, worthy of sincere thanks. So lack of gratitude in our hearts is a good test to find out pride and arrogance in our life. When we start thinking, I deserve better, I deserve better, let that be super red warning flag. You see, gratitude does not arise from those who believe they're owed the blessings they receive. They're usually the ones who will say, eh, yeah, you gave me a hamburger, but it's a little bit undercooked. They're the ones who will say, oh yeah, you gave me this car, but it's not the right color. Those are people who feel that they're entitled to something. And we live in a culture in America today that it just thrives on it, doesn't it? It's sickening. Are you not sickened by it? And then as I get sickened by it, I wonder, how often am I there? Am I sickened by my own feelings to entitlement? You see, entitlement does not foster gratitude. It fosters ingratitude. And that's why a whole lot of the system that our government puts up does not foster people who are like, oh, thank you so much for helping me out. Often it's, why didn't you give me more? I'm owed this. By contrast, this is the reason why we make such a big deal about the doctrines of grace in our church. Is Not only does the Bible teach those doctrines, but it's those doctrines that fuel God-centered worship and gratitude. We do not deserve the salvation that has been given to us. There's a deep, humble gratitude. There's a God-centered perspective. And lastly, there's a Christ-centered thankfulness. There's a Christ-centered thankfulness here. Notice that it all culminates with the Samaritan retracing his steps. And he traces back this great miracle back to Jesus. He sees that this is God at work. He gives glory to God. But he sees that God is at work in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. So as he gives glory to God with a loud voice, He prostrates himself before Jesus and he gives Jesus thanks. I think what the Samaritan has come to find out is that the important trip right now is not to the priests, but to the great high priest. It's not to travel to the temple, but to travel to the true temple, Jesus. The restorative power of God is found in Jesus' pronouncement that He's clean, not the priest's pronouncement that He is clean. What he wants to hear is not another man tell him he's clean, but hear God say you're clean. That i welcomed you into my family. That you've been brought into my household. You see, all socio-religious divisions are mediated in Jesus. And most importantly, our estrangement from God the Father is rectified in Jesus. So in giving glory to God, we give thanks to Jesus Christ. For it's through Him that God's power is mediated to us. He is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The hymn Jesus Paid It All gets to the heart of the matter. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. And now complete in Him I robe His righteousness. Close sheltered neath His side, I am divinely blessed. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. When from my dying bed my ransomed soul shall rise, Jesus died my soul to save, shall rend the vaulted skies. And when before the throne... I stand in him complete. I'll lay my trophies down, all down at Jesus' feet. That memorable refrain, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So let us make our request to God in the midst of thanksgiving, as Philippians 4, six says. May we rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything, knowing that Christ has paid it all, all to Him we owe. He can not only heal the leper's spots, but cleanse the most sinful, wicked heart. Replace the hardened heart... The heart of flesh. And most importantly, it's not simply that Je- what Jesus can do for us that we most want, but Jesus Himself. We get to partake of Christ. We get to be in loving relationship with Jesus Christ throughout all eternity. So let's run to Him, look to Him, fall on our faces at His feet, and give Him thanks. One thought that went through my mind as I watched the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics in London was the interesting sight that countries from all over the world could unite in one arena. Some of those countries, even at present, are not on good terms with one another. Yet the cause of human accomplishment in sport, for that reason, they come together. And they compete with one another. And people get quite emotional about the whole thing. But how much better will it be at the marriage supper of the Lamb? When Jesus takes his bride, the church, and people of every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around him to come home to be with him forever. You see, the Olympics are filled with joys and sorrows and disappointments, as some athletes realize their dreams and others don't. But on that great homecoming day, every person purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, every disciple of his will realize their hope and dream without a shred of disappointment. Christians will experience nothing but pure, unmitigated joy on that day. And every day throughout eternity, giving thanks will be the spontaneous, ongoing expression of everyone receiving such marvelous grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we delight ourselves in You. Oh God, You are so great and glorious and marvelous all glory goes unto you. And thanks be unto your Son, Jesus Christ. We know without Him, we would still be lost and dead and deserving of judgment. But you, God, didn't act with us according to what we deserve, but in accordance with your grace and mercy, your love. And for that, you are due an eternity of praise. We will never get to the end of it. Lord, we are so grateful. Please remind us of these glorious truths. Stop our lips when we become frustrated and angry. Stop us from gossip that tears down. Stop us from grumbling and complaining. Replace that with deep joy. Lord, please change our hearts. We're sorry for the moments where we have complained and been upset and believed ourselves to be worthy of something different. The truth is, we're worthy of hell. And you, out of your grace and mercy and love, have provided us heaven. And we know our blessed Savior went through hell to bring us to heaven. We're thankful for Him. We ask that our lives would bear witness to his sufficiency, to his greatness. Pray this in his name. Amen.